Welcome back to The Bunker Daily with me, Andrew Harrison. Now, every industry has been hit hard by the COVID crisis, but for sections of the media, it's verged on an extinction event. Newsstand circulation for publications has been hammered. Free newspapers have suddenly found themselves without commuters to pick up a copy, and magazines in particular have been devastated. Social media, built on content that it doesn't pay for, is sweeping all before it, but wrestling with fake news and hate speech. Meanwhile, online news reading has surged. Radio has done particularly well with literally a captive audience, and the BBC may even have saved itself from its performance during the crisis. So has coronavirus caused a crisis of confidence in press, TV and social media? And how's it all going to shake out for our often maligned mainstream media? I'm joined by Raymond Snoddy, the Don of Media Analysts, former presenter of Newswatch on BBC News, former media editor at the Times and the FT, the guy that I always used to watch on Channel 4, walking through uh, a set of uh, hovering headlines, and he's still keeping a watching brief on the British media. Hello, Raymond. How are you doing? Just just fine in these difficult times. The, the, the paradox, of course, is... It's bad for a lot of the media, but it's one hell of a story for everybody else. It is one hell of a story, and it's kind of uh, it's it's it gets no me- no more meta on this. I think um, it's often been said that you know the coronavirus has been an accelerator of the pressures on industries. It forces them to make changes that were going to happen anyway faster than it had planned. Do you think that's the case with with uh, with with the media? I mean, was our conventional media kind of teetering anyway? Do you think? Yeah, I think there's an awful lot of truth in that. But uh, when, when you're anyone in the media wanting to cheer themselves up a little bit, should remember that there are industries that are in far worse position, even 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 than the media, um, airlines, uh, hospitality, pubs, huge huge financial difficulties for them, and it's really the best of times and the worst of times for the media. Nobody now doubts the role of of the media and having an important, factual, reliable stream of information in in these life-threatening times. But at the same time as the role has been enhanced, the the methods of financing it and paying for it have been undermined, in some cases, perhaps fatally. I, I think you're right. There are a lot of industries who are in a much, much worse state than the media. But unfortunately, they're all our advertisers. All of our advertisers are going exactly, down the path. Exactly so. The, real, the, 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 the two obvious problems have been the physical product, newspapers, getting them delivered. Uh, things like things like uh, Metro and, and the Evening Standard, free in London, but totally totally dependent uh, for its business model on delivering to com- uh, commuters. Um, and then the collapse the collapse in advertising across the board for all of commercial media. Uh, you'll have seen that Channel 4 has taken a very bad hit and has had to knock $150 million off its programme budget this year. ITV seriously down. So again, the paradox, viewing figures are hugely up, uh, finances down. And you mentioned in passing the BBC might be saved as, as a result of this. Of course, the totally obvious, the BBC uh, has got its licence fee. Uh, so not only has its role been enhanced in difficult political circumstances, but the majority of its money is still coming in. There are there is a growing um, movement online to unfund the BBC. Can't can't pay, won't pay the license fee, and some people probably at the moment almost almost can't. And of course, the BBC BBC has also been forced into at least a postponement, if not a, um, if not 
getting rid of forever of the charge license fees for the over 75s. If, if that money never comes back, that's a 750 million a year hit to the BBC with loss of services, loss of staff, loss of programs, if it happened. If it, it's already costly just as a postponement. I want to come back and talk about the BBC in a bit more depth a little bit later because it's a huge story in, in and of itself. But co- coming back to print press, I mean, you talked about, you know, Metro, which had been redefining the industry and doing really, really well. Suddenly, its readership is just not there anymore. You know, we've seen things that, were, you know, we're not expected. Like the Mail has finally overtaken the Sun as the, the, the biggest selling print physical newspaper. Meanwhile, The Guardian, which, uh, you know, puts it out its appeals for, for readers to support them has actually done really well on that score. So I mean, who, who do you think has done well? Who, who's had a good crisis and who's had a bad crisis in terms of uh, during corona? Well, I, 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 I think papers like The Guardian have indeed done well. Um, and and what, is, what, what is starting to become very obvious is that the papers who decided, newspapers who decided to fund themselves through subscription and not rely on advertising, that's turned out to be a far-sighted venture. Um, the I just noticed that the New York Times, for instance, has hit its eight hundred million dollar a year subscription target a year early. Now that's more to do with Trump than uh, than the virus, but pay, but and and in the UK, the Times, the the, the papers that took the difficult decision to stop giving it all away for free, to say we produce expensive quality news and, and, and people are willing to pay for it, either online or on paper. Those, those are the sort of papers that, um, that will emerge the stronger. Of course, for that, you have to have information that people are prepared to pay for. And then we're really talk, talking at the top end of the market, the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Times, uh, and the Guardian hasn't gone down that route yet, though their alternative funding mechanism is to ask people for, for financial support. What the, what the difficult, the ones in the most difficulty are the ones most dependent on um, advertising, mass sales, mass distribution all around the country of physical products, that's going to be more difficult in the future. And what I fear, and I have no evidence for this yet, what I fear at the popular end of the market, the two or three months for those who haven't been picking up, uh, not going out to newsstands, not, uh, not, not commuting, that a habit will, a chain will be broken, a habit will be lost that might not. Of course, a lot of people will resume as before, but the danger is not everyone. Yeah, I mean, they do say it takes, what is it, 30 days to create a habit, and we've had like nearly 100 days of this, is it? That's my fear. I'd, uh, and and the, other, the other obvious thing is that papers were slowly moving a bit more in the direction of digital only not not many only 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 uh, only the independent but i think that move may be forced on more titles not not out of choice but as the only way of survival the other thing the other the other thing that's potentially revolutionary um newspapers have been forced to produce newspapers with with no physical staff in the office completely completely from home completely distributed and it's very difficult to imagine when facing diff- the most appalling financial crises that the notion of expensive 
office blocks in the centre of London to produce newspapers, Will, Will Rejong. Uh, I remember years ago, he was probably a bit of a, ahead of his time, David Montgomery, ex-ex-ex uh, and News of the World and everything. Um, uh, David Montgomery uh, told me that he foresaw a future of newspapers Well, there would maybe only be a dozen people at the centre, an editor and department heads, and they would be, they would be commissioners uh, of, of, of editorial, uh, on whatever base, either, either, either staff or freelance, largely freelance, I fear. And you're going to see that model. Montgomery was probably ahead of his time, but you're going to see that model now, not done out of virtue, uh, or because they want to do it, but it's maybe the only way to finance newspapers in future, unless two other things happen, which we can get on to uh, later as an alternative ways to help the mainstream media. But, but you could, the danger is that quite well paid staff jobs will be degraded to an awful lot of people freelance living from hand to mouth. And that will, that will just, those who want to make a profit out of newspapers will say, we've got no choice. Yeah, the, the the world of the permalancer. The the people I feel sorry for, of course, are TV drama writers because how do you write a newspaper drama when literally everybody is at home in their pants on Zoom and there's no smoke filled room? See, the, the the trouble the trouble with all of this is one thing you know leads to another. I mentioned I mentioned in passing that Channel Four has cut its its budget by 150 million a year just this year. Channel um, 4 makes virtually no programs, probably no programs directly on its own account. It is entirely a commissioning body for, uh, for, uh, for the independent production sector. The independent production sector must be taking one hell of a hit at the moment. There was a times when, when these guys became, became millionaires. Um, you're not going to, you'll be seeing a bit less of that in future. A lot, only, only the big famous winners will continue to get commissioned. And they were at the margins, there'll be an awful people, a lot of people struggling. And I'm not sure they're in a position as freelancers. Uh, to get much help, if any, from the government. I want to move on and talk about trust in media, which I, I mentioned at, at the top of the uh, at the top of the podcast. I mean, it's kind of a it, it's broadly accepted or broadly thought that trust in media has been collapsing for years, and that coronavirus has somehow accelerated it. But you go did a survey recently and found that um, you know, so trust in media during the crisis has been pretty consistent. See, the trouble is that that, pe- that people in general, and sometimes the media. Um, itself, and even those who should know better see the uh, the, the media as a single uh, as a single amorphous thing. Are you saying trust in the Guardian is low? Are you saying trust in the Financial Times is low? You have to. You you, you uh, uh, the, the survey I saw uh, said I'm afraid that trust in the Sun among um, whether it's among its readers or not among the interviewees was low, but in general. Uh, trust is really quite high. And the most important trust factor of all, as far as the, I uh, hate the term mainstream media, let's call it established media. Um, the, the, the most important comparison of all is that overall the trust is double that of the social media, where, where as you know, any old nonsense, whether it's, whether it's dangerous, life-threatening, xenophobic, goes. Um, and, and, uh, you, I mean, what trust is there in people spreading rumors? The, the coronavirus was was caused by five G. Uh, five, five. <laughs> now, I mean, you laugh, and I'm, I, I laugh too at the gullibility yeah. and stupidity of people. But people actually turned up and started trying to burn down five G sites. I mean, this is very serious stuff. And then there's the then there's the equally dangerous thing uh, uh, on the social media of of fake fake cures. 
and a bit unfortunate, the President of the United States um, uh, start, starts advocating drinking, drinking industrial disinfectant, but that's a, that's a different political problem. Overall, uh, trust in the media, uh, loosely defined or broadly defined, has, uh, has always been more than most people think, and it's actually, and it's actually rising because I, I do remember that when people say, do they trust the media? Uh, a lot of people say no. But then when they're asked, do you trust the newspaper you buy? And they say yes. So in other words, there's these myths spilling about all over the place about trust. But, um, but this is one of the, uh, one of the uh, good points and, and one of the opportunities for the established media that overall their information is trusted certainly much, much more uh, than the social media, which people aren't silly. They may like it, they may use it, but they don't really trust the information they see there. At least the sensible ones yeah. don't. I, I do agree with you, actually. And I do find it strange where people will, will sort of insist that they don't trust the media. And then when you, when, you, when you put individual titles in front of them, they say, I trust that one and I trust yeah. that one. And I trust that one. Which, which, bit do you, which bit do you not trust? And there's yeah, a very yeah. weird thing that's been happening since the election uh, in that self-same YouGov survey. Labour voters' trust in media is up since the election and Conservative voters' trust in media is down. Of course, with all the caveats you've just said, what is media? Yeah. You know, is it The Guardian? Is it The Times? Is it The Sun and so forth? Well, yeah. they focused in on the upmarket papers and found that 46% of Labour voters say they trust journalists from upmarket papers, the, for, the former broadsheets, but just 29% of Conservative voters trusted broadsheets. And it used to be the other way around. What what's happening here? Is this the red wall really turning blue, or is this you know people who used to vote Labour now voting Conservative and skewing the sample? What do you think is happening? The honest answer is I don't know, but I, but I think that the coverage uh, the coverage of the of the virus in a way um, is is uh, and and the changes in, in, in political beliefs go back to the referendum and Brexit and um, your 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 likelihood to trust it. Um, is linked in with how you voted, I think, uh, in the referendum. Uh, there, are, there are the people out there who just want Brexit done. And I saw, I saw a very extensive opinion poll across Europe just this very morning, um, which shows that only in Britain, only 34% of people now want to leave the EU when it is a legal necessity that we not only do so, well, we've left already, but that we could be leaving at the end of this year without a deal. Yet, yet, only 34% of the population now believe, um, I would call that the sort of irredeemable Trump minority, but that's from my point of view. Um, but the, the, uh, the, the point is there's an awful lot of people, a lot of things swirling in their minds, the, the coverage, and also the paper on, 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 on the Brexit issue. Um, I would regard the, 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 some of the papers, the coverage, uh, and Brexit linked in to Boris, um, outrageously biased. No attempt at, 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 at an analytical uh, analysis uh, of, of the position. But there again, the most the most Brexit paper of all, and the broadsheet certainly, the Telegraph, still does, still still you look and you'll find uh, honest factual journalism that goes against the editorial line of the paper. So it, it's it's not a hopeless situation, but there's large swathes. Of bias, and I think large swathes of uncertainty in the minds of a lot of people. And just like if this opinion poll is, is, is right, a lot of people have changed their minds on how wonderful Brexit is going to be. I think you're going, you've already started to see that the same happen to Boris. Boris Johnson was fun. Boris Johnson was a laugh. Boris Johnson was going to get uh, Brexit done. 
but he hasn't had such an easy ride uh, when dealing with a really complicated series of scientific matters uh, such uh, such as the coronavirus. And that, in a way, th- those fissures are, are reflected to some extent throughout the media. I want to ask you, I want to move it back. Let's go back to the BBC. We were talking about it earlier. Um, you know, they, they, this kind of common idea that the BBC has, has kind of saved itself. It, it, it hasn't, well, it's only partly saved itself. It's, it's, it's partly been, been saved by a pandemic mm. and the BBC's reaction to it, which is the reaction you would have expected. I have no doubt whatsoever, and I've look, look, looked into this in some detail, that the that the rather uh, you, you see this is not a this is not a conservative or labour issue the BBC it's the right wing of the pro Brexit right wing of the Conservative Party that has taken over power. I mean I I remember hearing the deputy uh, the, the de- former deputy prime minister say excuse me the destruction of the BBC was not in the Conservative manifesto so it's the it's the Cummings Boris Johnson cult. And I think that's the only word for them that um, that don't believe in the notion of public service broadcasting, just as alleged that Dominic Cummins in the past was not a believer in the National Health Service. He may or may not have changed his mind since. So there, there's no doubt in my mind that they were going to try and uh, destroy the BBC, which is by which I mean they they seem to regard it as just a transactional issue, like Netflix. You want to. Want to pay Netflix? You pay them six ninety nine a month or whatever, seven ninety nine, and you get your service. And that the same freedoms should be uh, afforded on the BBC. And indeed, they they, they were work. I this, mercifully, this has gone quiet. They were making it clear that they plan to decriminalise the licence fee. Now, for me, decriminalising the licence fee is the first stage on the way to turning the BBC into a small optional service like uh, like the United States, public broadcasting there. Because once, once you don't have to pay the license fee, by definition, some people won't. That, uh, uh, and impossible, the BBC has said, probably it costed 150 million a year. I think much more, uh, because once, once it's decriminalized and once people realize, and the word spreads, over a year or two, that you can watch the uh, the BBC for free, not pay your license fee, and nothing much happens to you. Because if it's not a criminal offence, the BBC would have to chase hundreds of thousands of people through the civil courts. And that's that's just not practical. So decriminalising seems like a good idea, but is actually simply the first stage in the destruction of a universal public service broadcaster, paid for by everyone, providing for everyone. Now, what the pandemic has done is highlighted the fact that maybe there should be a a universal service paid for by everybody to reach everybody and provide them with proper information and indeed education for children who aren't in school and all of that. So by chance, the, the, the sort of extreme right wing free market attack on the BBC has been undermined by something like the pandemic, which doesn't which doesn't mean to say the BBC is out of financial trouble, it's not. Uh, but what I what I heard the well, he's still he's still the director general of the uh, of the of BBC, Lord Tony Hall say. I mean, I naturally naturally I applaud people who agree with me, uh, and I 
and, and I've been writing about this for years. But he said, look, we're prepared when the license fees comes up, comes up for renewal in 2027. It's time to, to review, is there anything better? But he said, you have to go from the starting point. Do you want a universal public service? And then is the license fee the best way to fund it or not? Now that's the fundamental question. And I can give a, I can give a, I can give a wee plug for a friend of mine. Professor Paddy Barwise and and a colleague, they they have been toiling away on a book on the financing of the BBC for Penguin, and I think it's coming out in October. And he's laying out. Well, he I know I've read the uh, early drafts. Um, he he lays out the uh, just how ludicrous the arguments are of the of the right wing who have been deliberately set out to undermine the BBC and its finances. The trouble is they're now in Downing Street. But what they also have on their plate is a huge, you know, once in a century problem of reconstructing an economy that's been absolutely devastated in, in a way that, uh, you know, there are no analogues apart from alien invasion from space. You know, are yeah. they going to have the bandwidth to start messing around with the BBC? There, although the BBC has lost some support, and again, it comes back to Brexit. Brexiteers think the BBC was pro-Remain. Pro-Remainers are re- were really, really alarmed at not the BBC being pro-Brexit, but not analysing the Brexit case enough to, to see whether it stood up in any sort of real economic world. So a lot of the BBC's natural supporters have either turned slightly hostile or gone quiet. So that is a, that is indeed is a problem for the BBC. They will, they will have to reunite with the audience. They will, I don't think, have been nearly good enough at making the case for public service broadcasting. They've been just sort of battered into submission by the endless com- waves of competition. And this is all pro-virus. Pro, uh, pro, the endless waves of streaming competition and the dangers, uh, the dangers of uh, losing to the extent that they many more to lose the, the young audience. I was, I was speaking to, was speaking to somebody, somebody yesterday. It's not that the young are, are not watching the BBC. They are but they get the programmes from somewhere else. And there's a total disconnect between what they think the programmes are and who makes them and how they're financed. They don't see them as BBC programmes. And why should I pay this licence fee? And it's that there's a huge argument the BBC is going to have to make for itself because in this present world where people are, are, being, are going to be financial struggling and there's almost certainly mass, mass unemployment, um, Everyone's going to be looking at their their finances, and the BBC had better make their argument why they're why they're important. All right. Well, it's interesting because the next director general of the BBC is Tim Davy, BBC Studios chief executive, the guy who is in yeah. charge of making the programmes. Who you'd imagine would be in a position to, to 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 start making that argument. What sort of BBC do you expect him to to fight for and to try and build? Well, what I've, um, he's only he's only done as far as I know, sort of one sort of statement interview, and. Um, he, uh, he, he sounds good. He said, look, there must be clarity as to what the BBC stands for and what sort of programs. But before, before he takes over, the, the, uh, the, uh, the BBC's supposed to be one year plan, but goes ahead for two years. It was heavily, uh, heavily hinted that taking BBC three, which was mainly, mainly aimed at um, younger viewers, taking young adults, taking BBC Three uh, online only was a mistake, yeah. and, and, and which I, <laughs> I, 
mightily warned them at the time it was, but who's paying attention to what I have to say? But um, uh, it was an obvious mistake at the time, and now it could be a broadcast with you know with wonderful hits like Fleabag and Normal People. It, it could it, it could um, come back as a broadcast channel, but with a double budget of eighty million a year. But the corollary of that may be they may turn uh, BBC Four into. Um, uh, almost just a repeats channel and, and re- remove its commissioning apart from maybe some arts programs. Now, there again, uh, people of a certain age, older generation, tend to be the, the broadest, um, most generous supporters of the concept of the BBC. Uh, and I, I uh, include myself in this demographic. I happen to think some of the best things the BBC does are things that um, appear on BBC Four. Um, a, a plug from my friend Samira Ahmed, uh, who took who took over my television program some years ago, and she has just produced an absolutely wonderful three part series for 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 BBC Four, Art in Persia. Now uh, that's probably some of the best television of a historic nature that I've seen this year. If if Channel Four, if, if Radio, uh, Radio Four, if BBC Four doesn't have a, a program budget, will such a program be made for BBC Two? Will the BBC have the money to commission such things in future? And the, as in the States, you're into, you could be into the law of diminishing returns. Less BBC money to to produce great original programs, and people say, "Oh, there's nothing much in the BBC. Why should I have to pay a license fee by law?" There seems to be only two sources of help because the, the finances are going to be battered anyway for several years, if not, if not forever. One is a dangerous path of government help because then governments might start to exercise control as they try and usually fail, but try over the BBC because they can control the level of the licence fee. Tax breaks for newspapers, question mark. But for me, before the virus... The biggest threat to newspapers was was coming from the fact that so much of their advertising had been sucked up by Facebook, Apple, Google, all of these all, all of these billionaire companies from 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 um, the west coast of the United States who gen, generally have no interest in 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 the expensive business of producing proper news or indeed sorting out the absolute scandalous information that people share on their platforms. To my mind, they say they're neutral platforms and therefore they're not responsible for what appears there. I think that's entirely wrong. They are taking advertising behind their content. That makes them publishers, albeit publishers of an unusual kind. And um, this will probably require, uh, require legislation unless they're prepared to, uh, to, go, to go along in a voluntary way. Um, but uh, two things have to be enforced upon them. Proper, fair share of taxation, which is not something that happens at the moment, that's for sure. And the funding of, perhaps through a turnover tax, funding of, um, uh, of, of money that goes into the production of news. Difficult, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, uh, I, I don't doubt the difficulties of organizing these things in the real world, but new financial mechanisms have to be found to protect the flow of honest journalism. And, and as the, as the, as, the, as, uh, as Bonnie and Clyde were asked, why do they rob banks? Because that's where the money was. If I hope I haven't got my phone wrong, but, but 
that's the only place where the money is, and the money has been sucked out of orthodox production. And some at least, a method has to be found for some of that at least to be returned. I noticed there's a talk of a licensing scheme that they would actually license and pay for high-quality journalism, and indeed such a scheme is starting um, in some countries in the world. That's that's the, the non-legislative way forward, but it's a method, a way forward to transfer resources has to be found. Otherwise, there will be an undermining of the pursuit of intelligent journalism. I agree wholeheartedly, uh, as long as Britain's burgeoning podcast sector is part of this important initiative. I think we need supporting as well. We're holding it together and uh, we need all the support we can get. You do indeed, but but I think uh, the mainstream media has to has to create new streams of revenue. Mm. One interesting, but that predates the um, the virus, but about to launch Times Radio. That's yes. an interesting development. We'll see how it goes. And the other thing, I think the, I think the newspapers have been too lax in not launching their own commercial podcast systems as a moneymaker. Sorry, guys, you could be facing more competition in the future. Guys, we're here. Ring us. We're available for client work. Just give us a shout. You know how to reach us. Raymond Snoddy, thank you so much for joining us. It was absolutely fascinating. We're going to have to get you on again. Um, finally, before we before we wrap up, what have, what's been getting you through lockdown? What have you been watching and listening to and reading? Well, I did a, I did a tweet uh, yesterday or a couple of days ago, which got a, a, fair, a fair degree of uh, attention. What on earth am I going to uh, do at five o'clock every afternoon? With no, with no <laughs> press conferences. When you sit down with a large G and T and have the pleasure of shouting at the politicians, some people said, "Just have the large G and T, yeah." But it's not quite the same. Uh, the sort of guess game of seeing, trying to find out how they've manipulated the charts on this particular day, and you sort of you have to look very quickly down at the uh, down uh, down at the notes. Uh, to see what they've what they've changed without without telling you, and then of course the greatest scandal of all um, before they t- took themselves off the air and away from scrutiny those weeks when they dropped without any buy or leave all international comparisons when they became too embarrassing for the for the government of Boris Johnson. Raymond Snoddy, you're a man after our own hearts. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope to have you on the bunker again soon. Thank you. Listeners, remember, there's a new Bunker Daily on Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays and Fridays with the main show on Wednesdays. We'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.